as I have said to clients or pointed out to them before they fired me, um, <laughs> I'm going to give you pictures of things you've never seen before. And oh, cool. you know, they look at me, huh? Yeah. What do you mean? You're, you're going to come take pictures of my family in my house? And, you know, I said, yeah, but you don't see most of what's in front of your eye day in and day out. And I don't think any of us do. The other thing, of course, is I was talking. This photography podcast is brought to you by Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. Here is your today's host, W. Scott Olsen, with another fascinating conversation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from Frames Magazine. My name is Scott Olson, and today, folks, today we have got an awful lot of really cool stuff to talk about. Today, we're talking with B.D. Colin. B.D. is a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter and editor, formerly with the Washington Post and with Newsday. He has taught uh, photography, documentary photography at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He's taught at the Harvard University Extension School, Maine Media Workshop all over the place. And his work is everywhere. It, it's some of the most compelling series that I have seen. We've seen it on the Frames Facebook page. We've seen it basically every single day. Tremendously interesting work. BD, how are you doing today? Welcome. Uh, thank you very much. I'm, I'm doing fine. I'm trying to stay warm. <laughs> we are recording this in the middle of winter, and you are up in London, Ontario, not the warmest place on the planet. No, not the warmest place. Luckily, not quite as cold as I expected it to be, but chilly. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not as cold as where you are right now. But It, it was minus 26 Fahrenheit here the other day. Uh, um, not nearly as cold. <laughs> and and that, that's the real temperature. That's not the wind chill. The, 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 the real problem with the cold up here where I live is that we all brag about it. Yes. Uh, so that's <laughs> put on a coat and we're good. BD, now by everybody, you, need, you know, you'll see this obviously on the on the webpage, but you got to go to bdcolonphoto.com. BD as, as in Bravo Delta, colon, C-O-L-E-N, photo.com. This is one of the best, most well put together websites I've seen. It, it is really a, a joy to spend some time there and go through it. But I want to start someplace a little bit different. Uh, on the day that we're recording this, just this morning, BD, you posted an image from your Day in the Life series. And I, I loved the photo right away, but then I was really, really taken and, and impressed with the whole idea of this series. So tell me what's going on here. Tell me about the series and tell me about this photograph of the bedtime story. Well, the, the series, as you said, was really a, is a commercial venture, which I started, I guess, in the late 90s, came up with the idea of offering a kind of a commission documentary service to families. And the idea was that I would spend a full day with them from the time they woke up in the morning until they couldn't stand it anymore. Nothing posed, no, you know, everybody sitting on the couch staring at the camera, just whatever their day was. And it might might be a day of a kid's birthday. It might be a day of absolutely nothing. It might be grandma coming to visit. And when possible, in fact, I even would stay over go to their house the night before, stay over, and when people would stagger into the kitchen in the morning for coffee, there I'd be. Did a lot did a lot of people go for this? Yeah, I mean a lot is is an interesting uh, word. Uh, 
Well, one one of the things that I found out in terms of my, certainly my style and emphasis on reality, both in terms of families and weddings, is that you need a client who not only wants photos, but who appreciates photography. Okay. And that's not a huge audience. (laughs) One would wish it was bigger. You know, I would do a couple of these a year, sometimes more, sometimes less. And um, as I say, a couple times it, it was multiple days that I'd be with the family. And I would, at the end of it, um, put a book together for them. And um, that would be their, you know, their day. They could also obviously get files for their own printing. But but how, how is it you did, they didn't just by human nature, spend the entire day performing for you? I mean, how did, how did you get beyond vanity into something? Because, I mean, clearly you did get into something real. I think people think that's more a thing than it is. Generally, for the first half hour, you know, there'd be kids showing off for me. Sometimes there'd be a, a, a grandma right, who mm-hmm. would want to perform all day. But most of the time, very quickly, I mean, it could be in as little as sort of 15 minutes, people would forget I was there for the purpose I was there. They might talk to me, you know, they might have conversations with me all day long, but they wouldn't change what they were doing. I would start out, you know, if it was early in the morning in the kitchen, I would just put a chair in a corner and sit there. You know, they might talk to me as as they would anybody else, or they might ignore me totally. But I would just shoot what was going uh-huh. on around me. What, was there a lot of negotiation before the session about, you know, the fact that you're going to be shooting everything, and you know, and they can't be fixing their hair around the corner every five minutes? No, I mean nobody. Somehow that never even came up. I mean, they would just cool. They would they would understand what I was about, which would be why they would hire me in the first place. Right. And of course, I'm sure there were, you know, women particularly who would want to make sure they their hair was reasonably pulled together mm-hmm. to start with, and men for that matter. But um, they knew I would shoot what I saw and that I would basically be seeing everything. Uh, you know, I am so impressed with this series because it is, you know, it's a way to elevate the, the ordinary days of, of our lives into something extraordinary. Why, we'll get to this with some of your other work, too. Why did you choose to do all this work in black and white? Because I grew up on black and white. As I said before, I'm, I'm uh, in my 76th year. I think I got my first camera when I was about 11. Um, <laughs> shot Tri-X. Um, oh, yeah. And pretty much shot, I wouldn't say nothing but, but almost nothing but Tri-X until digital came along. I mean, I'd shoot the occasional roll of slide film and and, uh, and or negative color. But I just learned to think of photography as black and white. And in addition to that, the, the photography I grew up seeing was black and white. You know, I'm from the era of life and look. And the photographers who I grew up on shot black and white. So... Uh, it's black and white. I mean, I've done some of the this family stuff in color. Actually, the the 
photo you referred to that I have on frames today of a, a father reading to his two little girls on a couch at bedtime was shot on Tri-X because there was no digital. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, this, this was pre-digital, so that was a film shoot. That was, I think, my second shoot. The first shoot I did, I did just sort of as a as a free freebie tryout thing for a, a woman I worked with at a PR agency in New York. And I spent three days with her and her family. They went to from Westchester County outside New York to Philadelphia to visit her mother and go to the zoo and et cetera. And the second one I did was a, a giveaway that I arranged for in a children's clothing and toy store in the town in Connecticut I grew up in. And that's the one you see the photo from. But so that that was all film. Oh, it, it is it is marvelous work. Since since you mentioned it, let, let's let's go back in time a little bit. You say on on your bio that you know when you turned seven, the week after you turned seventeen, you're covering a march on Washington for a newspaper, and then that was the launch uh, to your career. Tell me about the early days. Tell me about the camera at eleven. Tell me about going out to cover the march at seventeen, and how you knew this was right for you. Well, the. the I have throughout my life kind of fallen into things. Or another way to put it, I guess, is I haven't planned things just happen. I've taken advantage of opportunities, certainly. Yeah, my father always had cameras. And I suppose in, in that sense, it was kind of natural. I was given a gift of a camera. I remember it's it's I should be heartily ashamed thinking about it now, but I, I don't know how many rolls of film I shot and then sort of played with in the sink with soapy water. Um, <laughs> li- literally, literally. Um, <laughs> to start with. And, you know, it was, it was, I think, some kind of Kodak 127 Bantam, maybe. And, but I, I got intrigued by it, and I particularly got intrigued. I went um, as a kid for two or three years to a sailing camp on Cape Cod in the summer. And the owner of the camp's son, who was a counselor and kind of a Pied Piper, was photographing day in and day out. And he had a, uh, I think it was a, a like a 3C at the time, had a dark room in the house, um, which he introduced me to. And I think I really got going because of him. You know, as I say, I remember sort of using saved allowance and, and grass cutting money or whatever um, to buy a, like a 3C with a with an old Canon 1.8 on it at Willoughby's in New York, which is long gone, and um, started that way. And then I decided that I wanted to do photography, if you will, and so I went into this local newspaper. As I say, it was the summer I was about to turn 17. And in the beginning of the summer, went into the Westport Town Crier in Westport, Connecticut, and said, I want to be a photographer for the summer. And they said, well, we don't have any jobs. And I said, well, that's okay. I want to be a photographer. <laughs> and um, they said, well, okay, we'll, we'll give you film and we'll pay for your gas. That's not bad for 17. And, no, and the whole, and, I, and I think actually initially they said, and we'll, we'll pay you 10 bucks a picture for pictures we use. Uh-huh. And my father at that point had a Rolleiflex, which, God bless him, he let me use. 
And at the end of the first week, they owed me 90 bucks. Wow. Um, so they said, yeah, you know what? Okay, we'll pay you. And I forget what they paid me each week, but it was very little. <laughs> and um, I started, you know, doing that. And um, I shot everything with that Rolofox from softball games to charity events, you know, the usual weekly newspaper stuff. And then I got sent to cover a meeting of a local group that was planning their trip to the March on Washington. So I went and shot that and then came back and said, I want to go. And they said, okay. <laughs> right. So I went and, you know, I still have a couple photos left from that and they're not terrific. And when I came back, sort of much to my chagrin, what they really wanted was they had me sit down and write something about the march and, you know, what I thought of it, et cetera, and ran it with a headline, Our Man 17 Marched on Washington. Oh, my. Yeah, oh, my is, <laughs> is precisely right. I mean, I didn't know anybody to cringe in front of at that point, but boy. Um, <laughs> although I, I have to say, you know, I went to the 50th anniversary march when that occurred not all that long ago and wrote something when I came back and actually wrote something for Harper's and included the piece that I had written when I was 17, because though it was not necessarily great journalism, it was actually pretty much on the mark. Oh, very <laughs> um, cool. Looking, looking at things all these years later. But um, yeah, I did, I did that. As I said, summer I turned 17. 17, I think, unfortunately, I probably I spent the next summer in summer school, but I was sent to Newport, Rhode Island for summer school, which was a really stupid thing for my parents to have done because it was both an America's Cup year and, of course, there's the Newport Folk Festival. So I had sold one of the March on Washington pictures to Seventeen magazine, so I got in touch with the editor I dealt with at 17 and said, hey, I'm in Newport. Can you get me an all-access pass? And they did. And I had taken to a movie, quote, dated, the daughter of an editor at Life. And so I said, hey, I'm going to be in Newport. Um, do you want pictures? And he sent me two bricks of Triax. <laughs> so that's 40 rolls. And said, send it back to us. I'll put it through the life dark room. If we want anything, we'll buy it from you. And if we don't, it's yours. So I shot my whatever off, all 40 rolls. Got some pretty good stuff. But this is one of those tragic lost stories. Around the 20th anniversary, let's see, that would have been 64. This was the summer of 64. So, yeah, around 84 when I was at Newsday, I was thinking, I got to do something with these. I'll bet I can get a book out of them. And not necessarily, am I, you know, I'm saying these are fabulous photos, but they were good. And obviously, you name anybody from the, the folk movement in that period, um, from, uh, I don't know, Dave Van, Dave Van Ronk to Bob Dylan to Joan Baez to Peter to Paul to Mary. I had pictures of them, you know, lounging on the grass and performing and et cetera. But I took all the contacts into Newsday along with the negatives to show them to somebody, left them in a desk drawer, and they disappeared. Do not have a single negative. <laughs> right? Um, 
yeah, it's it's um, it was one of those things. But anyway, that was sixty four. The summer of sixty five, I wrote to every weekly and daily newspaper between New York City and the Canadian border within 25 miles of the coast asking for a summer job. And out of that, I got two, two responses, one from the Providence Daily, where I had an interview, and one from a little paper in Blue Hill, Maine, called The Weekly Packet. And The Weekly Packet hired me for the summer. So I spent that summer shooting, you know, blueberry uh, picking and sailing races and et cetera. But I was the reporter photographer for the summer. So I learned to write news and I learned how to report. And I'd always liked to write, but it was something that was something I'd never really thought about. I was thinking, you know, that I was headed for doing something with photography and um, so I spent the summer with them. The following summer, I got a job as a photographer in Bridgeport, Connecticut for the Bridgeport Telegram, which was a daily. And then it, that fall, it was off to college in Washington. And that's where the, the, the car went off the track. My first day at George Washington University in D.C., I walked into the student paper and said, um, hi, do you need photographers? And they said, yeah, but can you write? And I said, uh, yeah. And they said, well, we really need reporters. So that was it. And off you went that way. <laughs> and off I went down that, that road for, you know, an entire um, writing career. Well, we, 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 we can't say anything bad about writing now. I mean, th- th- that, that no, is- <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, believe me, I mean, you know, it, it, um, A, it fed my family, and um, which I eventually had. I really, you know, I loved it. Well, th- th- this this leads me to, to a couple questions. First of all, you know, back you know before you, you got to college, you're you're hustling. I mean, th- there's a lot of just simple putting yourself out there, you know, saying to people, you know, come hire me, come hire me, you know, look at my work. Right, right. But there, but there had to be something good in the work, otherwise nobody would have would have done that. You know, so if if you look back at it now in terms of composition, in terms of framing, in terms of con, you know, whatever, is there something about those? early pictures that still lingers or, or was, was the beginning of a voice? I think it was the very, it was the beginning of a voice, which some people may have seen. There were a few things to start off that I think pushed me in the direction I ended up in photographically. One is a book that I'll bet not one of your listeners has ever seen called Willie. W-I-L-L-I-E. You can probably now get it for five bucks on battered copy on Amazon. That was shot by a photographer named Ken Hyman. And Hyman, he did a lot of commercial work in New York. He did a lot of work with and for Margaret Mead, of all people. And Hyman spent a week following a little boy, I don't know, who was about four or five, poor white boy around in New York. And this kid named Willie was allowed to go from by himself to wander from one end of his crosstown block to the other, but wasn't allowed to cross the avenues. And there was a, a poet who wrote the text that went with it, but it was just classic New York 
street photography of kids. And something about that really attracted me. Um, it, it has a it has a kind of a Helen Levitt-ish quality to it. Some of the photos are dead. To this day, I see them, and they're, they're just staggering. And that was kind of the direction I headed in, I think. I was, I was always interested in people. I mean, that's the reporting thing, too. You know, I did, I did my night police duty and, and et cetera to start with, but then drifted into medical writing. And in medical writing, the thing I focused on or had the, the greatest interest in was bioethics, which I kind of, if I may say, pioneered in the daily press. And I think part of what attracted me to that was sort of getting to talk to people about things they would never talk about otherwise. I can't tell you how many times, for instance, I would, would interview a couple who had either had a, an extremely sick baby in a, in a neonatal intensive care unit or, in fact, had lost a child. And they would tell me things they'd never told anybody, including each other. And it was fascinating. I think the family photography is somewhat similar to that. As I have said to clients or pointed out to them before they fired me, um, <laughs> I'm going to give you pictures of things you've never seen before. And oh, cool. you know, they look at me, huh? Yeah. What do you mean? You're, you're going to come take pictures of my family in my house? And, you know, I said, yeah, but you don't see most of what's in front of your eye day in and day out. And I don't think any of us do. The other thing, of course, is if I was talking first to the to the uh, the wife, um, she said, "Oh, my husband's a really good photographer." I said, "How many pictures have you got of him?" <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, right. <laughs> oh man. Let's take just a quick break. We hope very much that you are enjoying today's episode. The very fact that you are listening to this podcast suggests that photography means a lot to you. And if that's the case, you might want to have a look at Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. We truly believe that excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit readframes.com to find out more about our publication. And now, back to today's conversation. I, I, you know, you're opening the doors to so many things I want to talk about here. Yeah, you talk sorry, about, about a, the, little, a little far afield here. No, not at all. But I'm thinking, you know, the neonatal stuff. You've got some images there that that are both inspiring and heartbreaking. You've got some, you know, wonderful series, and which I want to get talking about in a second. But you know, your work obviously went to photojournalism and and documentary work mostly. You got the you know, the corporate stuff and and the weddings and stuff. But is is there a difference in your mind? Um, between photojournalism and documentary photo photography, or is one just a subset of the other? Yeah, I think I, I, as I would say to students, that that my view anyway, documentary photography is to daily photojournalism what long form, what is now called long form writing in newspapers or magazines is to daily coverage. You're spending more time with a subject. You're really getting into the subject. In principle, I don't know that there's that much of a difference. I mean, it's it's um, it is a subset. Um, okay. 
But but th- th- there is a big difference, you know, between a story in the New Yorker or the Atlantic and something in you know in, in your daily newspaper. Sure. Um, in, both in in our expectations as a reader, um, but also in the work and the time and the research and you know all the insight there. So I mean, I think that that's a really useful distinction. And and I got to tell you, I mean, I'm I'm really digging this Alone Together series as, as one of your documentary documentary projects. Where did that idea come from? And it, well, first of all, I mean, people, if you haven't seen this yet online, folks, this is a series of people who are absolutely alone, sitting in a crowd on a subway or a bus. And, and you know, isolation versus, I mean, psychological, emotional isolation versus physical. Where did that idea come from? Well, in, in um, I guess it was 2005, I got a job in communications at Harvard and I lived, I don't know, three miles, what was actually only two and a half, three miles away. And I got myself a Vespa, Vespa 50, but then came, you know, rainy days or whatever. And I found myself riding the T in Boston, Boston subway, <laughs> me, me and Charlie. First off, I was kind of taken fairly early on noticing the isolation of individuals in these crowds. And the other thing is I was sort of, I am one to, to my watchword is always carry a camera. So I started photographing and in not too long, I thought, yeah, there's something going on here. And so, you know, even in good weather, sometimes I would leave the, leave the Vespa home in the summer and, and ride the tea. Um, and certainly throughout the winter and photograph and did that actually for 13 years. The bulk of it was between 2005 and 2010, or 2015, excuse me, um, 2005, 2015, 10 years. And then I, I retired from Harvard and came up here to live in, in the summer of 2016. But for two years, I continued to commute back to Cambridge and MIT to teach one night and morning a week. And again, would find myself on the T and so continued to shoot. So it's really, it ended up being about 13 years worth of shooting. But was it, was there something about their isolation that, that was um, filled with pathos or, or was it ironic or, I mean, what about that, that situation was so compelling to you? Well, it's a little bit of everything. (laughs) I'm sure I saw myself in a lot of writers. Again, it's just kind of observing. It's like the written journalism. It's, it's, seeing what's around you and describing it. Um, This was kind of describing it photographically. It was also, it's challenging in the sense of, I cared about framing. Um, I cared about exposure. I cared, you know, it was not just let's grab some stuff. Um, And that made a pretty challenging environment because you're getting jostled and, you know, there are people right on top of you and, but it really was the how just sort of thinking about how we can be in a crowd. And I think this this holds anywhere. I mean, it's a look at people watching a parade. They may be with a couple friends, but those two, three, four, five, five, six people are cut off from the world around them. And in the subway, you've got, you know, what, um, a foot. <laughs> in any direction. Um, and yet people just kind of ignore what's going on. 
it was a challenging project, but it was also a project. It was something that was there that I could do along with my job, my daily job. And the daily job I, I built, I wasn't hired to do photography. I was hired to write. I was a science communicator and director of, of communications for the Harvard Stem Cell Institute. But I very quickly decided, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my own photography for it. And, you know, it was fine with people who were running things. Yeah. What, was a lot of this work surreptitious? Was it just, you know, pull the camera out quickly and, and then put it away as fast as you can? Or, or were people generally aware that you were sitting there with a camera in your hand? People were generally unaware, but it wasn't the, the pulling it out kind of thing. I mean, I, I learned long ago that the way to have people see you taking pictures is keep waving your camera around. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm always sort of amused by people with the wrist straps, with their whatevers that they're sort of waving as they shoot on the street. You might as well be waving to the people you're photographing. No, I mean, I would just sit there quietly like anybody else with the camera on my lap or, or be holding the camera sort of up around my shoulder and neck. And some photos were taken, you know, surreptitiously, if you will, um, but most were not. And I found it didn't matter what size camera I was using, the, the, the reaction or lack of was pretty much the same. I mean, in 13 years, I had one woman give me the finger, and I had one male rider get very obstreperous, and I had had a really bad morning, and I got, yeah, we almost got into it, but didn't. Oh and actually, I wasn't even trying to photograph him. Um, but, <laughs> but that's it in 13 years. I mean, I would have people look away uh-huh. um, if they noticed me, and I wasn't interested in them. As soon as, as, soon as they stopped doing whatever it was that had drawn me to wanting to photograph them, the moment is gone. And so, all right, you want to give me the finger, give me the finger. I'm not going to take a picture of that. What does that prove? That somebody can give somebody the finger. I mean, you know, and there are a few photos that I kind of, I like out of the hole in which people were looking directly at me. But in most of them, they're not. Um, They're just unaware of me or pretending to be unaware of me anyway. Well, okay. This leads into sort of a two-part question here, because it'd be really easy at first blush to say that you know that you are a, a documentary, you know, um, photographer, that you are coming out of the photojournalism tradition, and yet that would be a really small understanding of your work. So tell me, tell me where you know weddings comes comes into your professional identity tell me where all this color that this travel these these marvelous portraits all over the world how does that come to be a part of, of who you are um thank you the <laughs> weddings is kind of the same thing to me i mean i tell people i will document your wedding i'm not going to give you photojournalism style wedding photography i'm just going to be there and you know you always have the discussion with the bride-to-be and groom beforehand and i said listen if let's just say and i don't know this but let's just say your mom and dad are divorced and your husband now has a or your husband your father's got this 25 year old wife and he brings her to the wedding and she and your mom get in a brawl i said i'm gonna photograph that <laughs> i said i i said i won't put the pictures in the in the you know in the book 
unless you want them, but I'm going to photograph it. And in fact, the first wedding I did was for a, a colleague at work in New York who was getting married in New Orleans in the Garden District. And the mother of the bride had already hired some fancy New Orleans wedding photographer, but he and and the bride hired me themselves because they wanted me to just do my thing. And the wedding was outside in a backyard in the, the garden district. Now, I don't know. It was a big wedding. They had a big backyard with kind of an awning going out to the backyard, like a hotel awning. And then this fantastic hoopah up at the front. And I got pictures of the, the, you know, bride and her father coming out under the hoopah, or excuse me, under the awning. But then the rabbi had said no photos during the ceremony. Well, okay. yeah, well, um, <laughs> I thought this is nuts. <laughs> I know there is no religious prescription. <laughs> okay. Photographing, because I mean, this wasn't some Hasidic wedding or, you know, so I got myself behind a tree in the backyard and I had a, uh, I guess a, among the cameras I was using was a, a Nikon with a, a 180-28 telephoto. And I'm focusing on the hoopah. Obviously, I can only see them from behind. But I noticed something weird is happening. The bride is down on her hands and knees. And I thought, this isn't part of any wedding ceremony I've ever seen. The next thing I see is the bride's, the groom's mother goes running toward the house and a couple minutes later comes back carrying this huge copper mixing bowl. And I then realized the bride is down on her hands and knees hurling. Oh, my. Only way to put it. Yep. And I interject immediately, no, she hadn't had too much drink the night before. One of the bridesmaids had brought a bug into, one of the uh, flower girls had brought a bug into the house. They managed to get her back on her feet and they finished the ceremony and the bride and groom come up the sort of aisle between the seats in the backyard and I photograph them and I discover that she has vomit down the front of her Vera Wang dress. Yeah. They go into the house. She goes upstairs, goes to bed in her childhood bed doesn't come back down until 10.30 for 15 minutes when they cut the cake and disappears again. <laughs> just, just what everybody wants immortalized for all eternity with well, your photographs. When I, when I made <laughs> the album, I mean, I spent about two hours in Photoshop, and I'm not any great Photoshop um, manipulator, but cleaning up that dress. And in those days, actually, I was doing prints in, you know, in an album, and... I made a print of the original and tucked it into the back of the album and with the splatter dress, <laughs> but also gave them the cleaned up one. And they love the splattered one. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, that, that's the story that they, they tell their grandkids. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think six absolutely. months later, they had another version of the reception so they could both do it. <laughs> um, but, but weddings generally, I find, you know, I mentioned um, Ken Hyman and Margaret Mead. Photographing at a wedding, at least the way I'm doing it, I feel kind of like an anthropologist. You know, this is one of essentially the two 
the two main times in life when families come together, weddings and funerals. It's very often the last time when various members of the family will see the older generation because they're going to die before they see them again. The best and the worst of people comes out. I always have made it a point at all the weddings of having grandma and grandpa pointed out to me and make sure I get some nice shots of them because, as I say, who knows, right? My interest in it or my fascination with watching it probably has something to do with my own personal life, which I think has something to do with a lot of what we photograph. Oh, um, I, I, absolutely. And um, so it's, it's just, it's interesting. So weddings and, oh, color. Okay. Color, I really came to color, oh, in about 2013 or, or 14. It's the first time it it really started attracting me. And again, there was something going on in my life that that was changing and kind of opened me up, I think. And that may be why. I mean, I'm still a black and white guy, but I do see color where I really didn't see it before. The overseas stuff um, you're mentioning, I mean, I went to... to um, Somalia for Newsday in 1990, right before um, Black Hawk Down episode. That was all, um, well, actually, I shot all of that on, what was it, Fuji Press 800, I think, or 400. But what I have of it is off a couple of black and white contact sheets from that because Newsday lost all the negatives. So I had done that, and then I had an opportunity from an old friend to go to Liberia to photograph for uh, a couple of um, an American and a Canadian NGO that um, do literacy work. So there was that. And obviously that was all shot digitally. And, um, you know, I convert to black and white, but um, have a lot of that work in color. And from that, I did, I guess, four trips to Haiti for different NGOs. And again, it's colorful, but but one of the things I th- think I learned <laughs> from Liberia, from Haiti, um, and I think this applies to much of the economically underdeveloped world, is color's a distraction. And I think color is an intentional distraction for the people living in those countries. You know, think of the bright colors in India, for instance, all the pictures we see, it's the saris and et cetera. And throughout that part, those parts of the world, there's this ubiquitous sort of blue, green, green, blue in hospitals, um, on walls, et cetera. Life's pretty dreary for most people and color makes it a little less so. But I think that when we photograph it, in color, we hide the reality. Um, but w- wouldn't the re- wouldn't the reality be their effort to make a dreary life more colorful? It is. That's true. But it's not what the reality of the life is. Right? It's it's a distraction for them and for us, so that people look at the pictures and say, "Oh, it's so pretty." Well, no, it's really not. You know. <laughs> 
<laughs> take away the color, and there's nothing pretty about this. I mean, I'm, I'm always appalled when I hear about people, for instance, who have vacationed in Haiti. It's, how do you do that, right? How can you look at what's around you and have your daiquiris? I just, I don't get it. And so I, I tend to, you know, convert. Not everything. I mean, certainly they're in Haiti. You know, I can't speak to India. I haven't been there. But I mean, in Haiti, they're just gorgeous. Some gorgeous, gorgeous sort of landscapes. You know, it's, there's a book called um, Mountains Beyond Mountains, which actually is about the medical problems there. But it, it's a mountainous country and beautiful. And I've, you know, I've photographed that and kept it in color. Um, there's a, a picture I posted on frames the other day of a little boy running with a kite. The kite um, runner. Yeah. Just a couple of days ago. Yeah. And, and that's color. I mean, it was colorful and it's a, it's a kid having fun. Okay. Well, l- l- let me ask you one last question here because I'm, I'm staring at one of your pictures and this is the one that you've got as, as the main banner picture on your, uh, Facebook page. And, and it's a couple embracing and, and there is, in your work, you know, even in the, in the alone together, you know, the isolation stuff, there, there, there's a real kind, I think, of, of empathy and love in your work for a lot of the stuff that you're looking at. Why, first of all, you know, why, why is that picture the first thing we see on your Facebook page? And if you had to ascribe a character to your, over, to, to, to your work as it's been, you know, throughout time, how would you want to be described? Okay, that picture is there because I change the pictures a lot. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and, so much for that question. <laughs> and no, no, I, I shot that one uh, this Christmas in Toronto, which was the first time we'd managed to get in and see my wife's family for obviously like 18 months. And that's my wife's daughter embracing her uncle from Nova Scotia, who she hadn't seen in two years. Oh, very cool. It's a lovely picture. And thank you. I, yeah, I, I like it. That's why it's there. I mean, by the time anybody looks at my page, it may be gone. <laughs> <laughs> Hurry up, folks. Hurry um, up. <laughs> I, okay. I, yeah, I don't know how many minutes I have left, but let me talk about another photographer for a minute. And then, okay. And I don't compare my work to his in any way, shape, or form. I can't hope to ever touch it. Uh, but that's Saul Leiter, who did the most gorgeous color work and street color work in New York in the 50s, late 40s, early 60s, when very few people were doing it. There's a documentary about Saul Leiter, which I would highly recommend to everybody. Uh, the, the second half of it's uh, 13 Lessons in Life with Saul Leiter is the second half of the title. And no easy something, but just Google Saul Leiter documentary and you'll find it. And the thing that I see in his work and took away from that documentary, which was made when he was in his late 70s, is kindness. There's a kindness to the images. And if anybody can say that about my work, I'd be really proud of that. I'm not necessarily a kind enough person, but as I have told both my writing students and my my photography students, there's no such thing as objectivity, right? I mean, I was brought up being taught about objectivity in journalism. There's, there's absolutely no such thing because anytime we take a photo, anytime we go to an event, cover it, interview people, we bring every part of us 
that event. All of our prejudices and everything we've learned, everything we've mislearned. So you can't get away from that. But what you can do is be honest and fair. And so for the, the photo people, I mean, I, a, a brief aside to outrage people, I loathe Bruce Gilden. I think he gives photographers, street photography, a bad name. Because it's not that he takes pictures of people who are unattractive, it's that he tries to make them more unattractive. And what I would tell photography students is, you have a duty to photograph people as they are, not to make them look better and not to make them look worse. And I, I mean, I think that's, that's sort of how we have to engage with people is just to be fair and honest with them. And I guess in some ways that's a form of kindness. I don't know that it's all lighter's kindness, but it's to me some form of kindness. I, I think kindness is, is a goal that every single one of us ought to aspire to. Uh, fairness and honesty and kindness. Boy, if they can say that about any of our work, then like you, we should all be proud. Beatty, this has been fantastic. This has been illuminating and wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And it's been a delightful conversation. Okay. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Frames. Because excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit us at www.readframes.com. <laughs>